As you're being seated, you can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, as Pat mentioned the announcements, we are beginning our Global Impact Week this morning. We have, we have many missionaries that we support throughout the world, but there are three key partnerships that we focus on. Uh, one is in the communist world, one is in the Muslim world, and then uh, what we're focusing on this year is uh, our partnership in the postmodern world of Europe. Each of these areas has its unique challenges, obviously, for uh, presenting the gospel, uh, but it might surprise you to know that Europe is absolutely one of the most difficult places for missionary to work. It's one of the most difficult places to share the gospel and to see the church established. We've got a video here from Crossworld Ministries that kind of lays a little background and helps understand why it's such a difficult place to serve. Let's call it a geography of belief. You're trying to cross a spiritual landscape. You know, find the answers to the big questions. Why are we here? Where are we going? How should we live? Using just a map and a compass. Only you live in Western Europe. So that means your map doesn't have any roads on it because you aren't supposed to let your faith determine the course you follow. People who daily live out their faith run the risk of being officially labeled as belonging to a sect. And forget about landmarks. A landmark is something lasting and recognizable that you can use to find your way. But in Western Europe, it smacks of Christianity. It's considered a relic from the past. So no church, no Jesus, none of that Bible stuff. Been there, done that. Your map doesn't have any lines on it either. Lines are too black and white, and here in Western Europe, there are no absolutes. Clinging to a moral absolute, everyone knows that's the unpardonable sin. And forget the compass. True north, truth is a relative thing here. One person's north is as good as anybody's north. So what good is a compass? The geography of belief in Western Europe has no roads, no landmarks, no map, no compass. Now, go find your way. Europe is dominated by what is called a postmodern worldview, and it probably doesn't surprise you to know that the United States is about a half step behind Europe in this postmodern culture. What I want to talk about this morning is not what are our missionaries doing out there, but what can we do to engage our culture with the gospel? How do we engage our culture, which is increasingly postmodern, with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And It's interesting to me that Peter actually has a lot to say to us. But before we get into the text, what I'd like to do is uh, to again lay a little bit of background, a little historical and cultural background. And I want to begin with a definition. I'm going to begin with a definition of worldview. Uh, The video referred to it. I'm going to refer to it in the future as well. Uh, This worldview is uh, defined by James Sire like this. He wrote a small book called The Universe Next Door in which he talks about the different worldviews that are out there. You want kind of a primer on this subject, it's a great book to read. He defines it like this. He says, a worldview is a set of presuppositions, that is, assumptions which may be true, partially true, or entirely false, which we hold to, consciously or subconsciously, consistently or inconsistently, about the basic makeup of our world. They are generally unquestioned by each of us, rarely, if ever, mentioned by our friends, and only brought to mind when we are challenged by a foreigner from another ideological universe. In other words, worldview is what's running in the background. It is this set of beliefs about what is true, what is most valuable. We may be conscious of what our worldview is, or we may not be conscious of our worldview. We may be consistent in our application of our worldview or inconsistent. Our worldview might be true or false, but the fact is this set of beliefs will determine the choices that we make and how we live our lives. 
Right? That's what a worldview is. And the foundation of a worldview for every single one of us is authority. Okay? A basis of authority that, again, we trust in, consciously or unconsciously, forms the foundation of how we think about our world. If you look at the history of Western civilization over the last uh, 2,000 years, there basically have been three primary sources of authority that people have committed themselves to. Now, this is a bit of an oversimplification, but I just want to give you a broad brushstroke of where we've come from and where we are now. Okay, the first source of authority that people bought into was revelation. People who accepted this as source of authority and consequently built their worldview upon this believed that God existed. God does exist. God has created and God has revealed himself, not just in creation, but also in specific propositional form, that is through scripture. And because he has revealed himself and he is God, it is an inerrant and infallible and authoritative guide for life. So for centuries, Christians fought about many things, but what they were fighting about was not whether or not God existed. Everyone bought into that. They didn't fight about whether or not God had revealed himself. Everyone bought into that. They fought about interpretation of God's revelation. Okay? And for centuries, this really was the dominant basis of authority and consequently uh, really dominated people's worldview. Second source of authority that emerged was reason. 17th and 18th centuries, we saw the age of reason followed by the Enlightenment. Nancy Piercy has uh, summarized this period of time like this in a book called Total Truth. She said, The idea emerged that by a method of systematic doubt, the human mind or reason, often capitalized, could attain to godlike objectivity and certainty. Descartes helped to establish a form of rationalism that treated reason not merely as the human ability to think rationally, but as an infallible and autonomous source of truth. Reason came to be seen as a storehouse of truths independent of any religion or any philosophy. A reason became God. Now, as Christians, we're not anti-reason. Right? We're, we're not anti-thinking. We believe that God has given us mind. He has given us rationality and reason. And we should use that. However, it's God-given, but not God itself. And in the age of reason, followed by the Enlightenment, reason became God. That's why it was often capitalized. Capital R, reason. Rene Descartes said this, We ought never to allow ourselves to be, be persuaded of the truth of anything unless on evidence of our reason. And so, out with revelation, out with God, and in with the mind of man, or reason, Mankind, applying his best thinking, can solve any problem, can come up with any solution that is necessary to move life forward. Reason began to be applied to revelation, and it was determined that revelation was not, in fact, from God. It was full of errors, and revelation was set aside, and with it, key doctrines of Christianity. First to go was Trinitarianism. How can you understand Three are one, and one is three. It doesn't make sense. But if a person wanted to continue to call himself or herself a Christian, they had to move into Unitarianism. It's a much more understandable view of God, but it's not based upon Scripture. It's based upon reason. And so Christianity was replaced really with deism. Yeah, I want to still believe that God exists, but I can't believe that he's active in the world. He put things in motion, and then he stepped back, and now it's up to us. We need to 
think and figure things out and choose and act. So reason became the center. And increasingly, people rejected Christianity altogether. And they believed in uh, naturalism. That is, there was a natural explanation for all that we see and all that we observe in life. Materialism came to dominate, by which I mean not greediness, but the belief that the material world is all there is and all that matters. If you can't see it, taste it, touch it, hear it, or smell it, it doesn't exist or it doesn't matter. This is the age uh, which is known as humanism. Man is the center, or as the phrase went, man is the measure. Remember when I was a freshman at Texas A&M, I I signed up for an honors English class. (laughs) I don't know what I was thinking. But I signed up for honors English, and uh, my professor was a great guy. I really liked him a lot, but he was thoroughly humanistic in his worldview. And so uh, each student had a small class, so each student had to sit down with him and agree upon a subject for a term paper. And he said to me, Brian, I want you to write your paper on Man is the Measure. And he handed me the book by that title, Man is the Measure. Man is the center around which all revolves. And I said, you know, there's a problem with that, sir. I, I don't believe that man is the measure. And he said, I don't care. Write a paper on man is the measure. And so I read the book that he asked me to read and I wrote my paper and it was titled, Man is Not the Measure. <laughs> and my grade reflected our completing worldviews. You know, we didn't see things eye to eye. For centuries, this is the dominant worldview. Mankind is basically good. Mankind is powerful. Mankind is intelligent. And if he applies himself properly, he can solve any problem. But if you look at the history of the world, several events occurred that kind of shattered that illusion. We had two world wars, a holocaust, the atomic bomb, Great Depression. And this commitment to the idea that man is basically good and man is constantly progressing and man can solve any problem began to be shaken a bit. In 1880, Friedrich Nietzsche wrote a poem called The Madman. It goes like this. Whither is God? The madman cried. I shall tell you. We have killed him, you and I. All of us are his murderers. But how have we done this? How are we able to drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from its sun? Are we not plunging continually backward, sideward, forward in all directions? Is there still any up or down? Are we not straying as through an infinite nothing? Do we not smell anything yet of God's decomposition? God's too decompose. God is dead. God remains dead. And we have killed him. Now, Nietzsche didn't believe that we should resurrect God, that we should put God back at the center of all things. But what he was acknowledging is when we unchain this earth from its sun, when we remove the anchor of the soul for people, when God is no longer at the center of our lives, then cultures are going to go through massive shifts and disorientation. And he was exactly right. And so as the age of reason and the enlightenment began to have some of its foundations shaken, alongside was added a third source of authority, and that is experience. And I say added alongside because there are still people who believe in revelation and still those who believe in reason as a source of authority, but experience 
as a source of authority, which is the basis of postmodernism, increasingly is becoming dominant. A worldview in which uh, there is no transcendent storyline. History isn't moving a direction. And there is no absolute truth. Now, all truth is relative. Now, again, I say it, that it's added alongside because if you look particularly at a culture like we live in, in a university town, in the Bible Belt, we have these conflicting worldviews and bases of authority going all the time. Uh, you know, just down the road at the university, in the classroom, or at least in many classrooms, and in the laboratory, reason still dominates, right? You can't go to your calculus teacher and say, you know, I just feel like the answer should be this. <laughs> That's just not going to fly, right? You say, no, this is how you work the problem, and this is the solution, and there's only one. There are some things that are absolute truth. But then when you walk out of the laboratory or out of the classroom, what you're going to see increasingly in our culture is that postmodernism dominates. A world in which there are no absolutes. Postmodern playwright Harold Pinter put it like this. There are no hard distinctions between what is real and what is unreal, nor between what is true and what is false. A thing is not necessarily either true or false. It can be both true and false. Which for a person who is a modernist, who is a rationalist, that is absolutely ridiculous. That language makes no sense whatsoever, but increasingly you see this kind of language Throughout our culture, it's everywhere. Jean-Paul Sartre stated it like this. It is up to you to give life a meaning. And value is nothing but the meaning that you choose. No one can argue with your experience. It's what you've experienced. Or as another philosopher probably well known to you has said, Johnny Depp, he was asked one time how he developed his acting style. And this is what he said. It's a lot like religion. You pick and choose what works for you. And that forms your basis of truth and how you will approach God. Okay, that's a, that is a post-modern mindset. I found this, uh, <laughs> found this painted on the road on campus. I think it's just a great modern metaphor. It's on uh, Bazell Street as you're driving toward campus, architecture buildings in front of you, meteorology, oceanography, meteorology. Okay, that to me is perfect because there is only one absolute truth in our culture, and that is that there are no absolute truths, right? And that shouldn't make any sense to us because it doesn't, because it's an absolute statement. Absolutely, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there are no absolutes, except this one absolute, that there are no absolute truths. There are none. So in our culture, what we value is not the search for truth, capital T. What we value is diversity of opinion, tolerance, anything goes. And that is a higher value than truth itself. It's a higher value than truth itself. That is why Christianity is so offensive to our culture and to the European culture because Christianity is making a claim to exclusive truth, to true truth, capital T. Jesus put it like this. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one, no exceptions, comes to the Father but through me. And in a culture that values 
diversity of opinion, tolerance of all things, that is anathema. Okay, that is the one thing you can't say. All viewpoints are acceptable, except the one that is exclusivistic. And Christianity is. And so we should expect our culture to push back against the claims of Jesus Christ. However, at the same time, mankind needs God. Mankind needs God. Life doesn't work except when God is at the center of the universe. He's at the center of our thinking and feeling and choosing. We need God. And so even though the culture may push back against the claims of Christ, they need Christ. That means there is great opportunities for us who have the truth of Jesus Christ to share hope to a modern world. It's been interesting to me as I've read back through 1 Peter this time, teaching it again. It's been years since I've, I've actually taught the book. And as I've been looking at it and thinking about our culture that we live in, how many parallels I see between Peter's day and our day. Remember, Peter lived in a pluralistic culture. He lived in a, a polytheistic culture that accepted lots of different religions and all were to be tolerated. But those exclusivistic religions... Those were pretty marginalized. Judaism was marginalized. And Christianity, the more it was understood that it was making exclusivistic claims and telling its people, in a sense, not to fit in. You are not citizens of this world. You are citizens of heaven. Increasingly, as Christianity became known, it became marginalized as well. It was suspect. Christians were distrusted. There were conflicts at home. And then there were minor outbreaks of persecution that Peter talks about. There were slander and accusation. And then eventually there was official sanctioning for persecution of Christians. Peter lived in a day that was not dissimilar to ours. And so the advice that he offers here in chapter 3, I think, is really relevant and really timely. I want us to go back and we're going to begin reading in chapter 3 and verse 13. Peter writes, Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? If you live well, if you live like Jesus Christ, that is good for society. And the right reaction of your culture to you should be that you are praised. However, it won't always work that way. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now, do you remember what the big idea was from last week? Okay, one big idea. So walk away with this. There's one big idea, and it is this. Jesus has won. Okay? Jesus has won. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that God accepted his sacrifice for our sins. And now he has been exalted and he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Someday he will come back and he will establish his authority over all the earth. Jesus has won. So even if you're being persecuted, if you're in Christ, you win too. Don't be afraid. Okay, that's his first exhortation. Here's how to respond to a postmodern world. Fear God, not man. The very fact that you're being persecuted for the cause of Jesus Christ demonstrates that you have chosen well. Because Jesus was persecuted, and then he was vindicated. Noah was persecuted, and then he was vindicated. And if you're in Christ, you will be persecuted. 
and you will be vindicated. So don't fear man. And he says, don't even be troubled. That word means uh, to, to stir up, to cause confusion. And when we're persecuted, we're tempted to step back and say, well, is this really true? Have I, have I really chosen well? Is it really worth the sacrifice? And he says, don't be thrown off your game. Don't be thrown off your game. And what he does, Peter, Peter quotes Isaiah chapter 8. And the setting in Isaiah 8 is that God's people have taken their eyes off of God. And they're facing this, this shadow of imminent invasion from Assyria or maybe Israel and Aram. And they're trying to arrange their world to protect themselves. And they're living in fear. And Isaiah says to them, do not fear man. And do not let your confidence be shaken. But if you focus your attention on the strength of man, your world will crumble. Now, instead, fear God. Fear God. How do you do that? Peter says you sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. In other words, you you set Christ apart as distinct, as different. He is unique. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we should not be ashamed of the gospel. We set Christ apart as Lord in our hearts. Do you remember when uh, the disciples, including Peter, asked Jesus, how do we pray? Jesus, when you pray, it's really different. It's not like the scribes and the Pharisees. There's really religious people in our culture. It's not like that. Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Obviously, we listen to you. We don't know how to pray. What does Jesus say? Yeah, I'll teach you. Start here. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Peter heard that, and he's repeating it in 1 Peter. That word for hallowed is the same as sanctified. God, may your name be set apart. Let God be God. Let Christ be Lord in your heart. Set him apart. Because he is different, he is distinct, he is unique. And when Christians back away from the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, Christianity loses all its impact on the world. Just two years ago, 2008, the Pew Religious Research Foundation ran a study, and one of their results was this. They found that 52% of all American Christians say that many religions, including some non-Christian religions, lead to eternal life. 52% of Americans who call themselves Christians say there are many roads which lead to God. And that is why Christianity has little impact on the culture. It only has impact when we stick with the fundamental claims of Jesus Christ. He is unique. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has power. There is no other name that has been given among men under heaven by which we must be saved except the name Jesus Christ. So Peter says, first and foremost, don't be afraid of man, but let God be God. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Second, be prepared. Look at me again at verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Christians, when we suffer, when people make fun of our faith, when they distance themselves 
from us because of our faith, when we don't get the promotion or don't get the job, when family members don't want to have anything to do with us, they don't want to hear our opinions, when we suffer for our faith and we don't retaliate, that is supernatural. That is supernatural. It's going to stop them. They're going to say, something's different. And Peter says, when that happens, you need to be ready. Always be prepared to answer everyone and anyone who asks you, why do you have hope? Because the world does not have hope. The world does not have hope. When the world is operating under the delusion that they have control of the future, then they have a false hope. But the world does not have hope. There's, there, there's famines and earthquakes and floods. There are recessions and losses of jobs. And stocks go down and retirement savings evaporate. And then there's disease and sickness that hits our bodies. There's all these things that we're facing now or that we face in the future. You know what? Christians walk through those same experiences. But we have hope. Which means in the Bible... Confident expectation, not wishful thinking. We have hope because we know how the story ends, right? Uh, we may not know what's going to happen to us tomorrow, but we know that one day Jesus Christ will return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King and we will be with him. We know how the story ends. We know the direction of history. And so as we face these same circumstances of of sickness and disease and losses of jobs and all these sufferings that happen in a broken world, we're not shaken off our game, right? We walk through those differently. And when people see us walking through those differently, it arrests their attention. Peter says, when that happens, you need to be ready to give a defense of the hope that is in you. He's not saying be defensive, but give a reason for the fact that you have hope. And the reason that we have hope is that Jesus rose from the dead, proving that he has won, and if we're in him, we win. So let me break this down for you. First thing I want to encourage you to do is master the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is easy to get pulled off onto all kinds of different issues, but the fundamental issue for Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. No resurrection, no Christianity. No resurrection, Paul says, worthless faith. Master the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you have an opportunity, just a moment, to present the gospel of Christ, be ready. Kind of fun exercise to do. I remember the first time I studied 1 Peter, I went through it, I got to the end, and I thought, you know, Peter says a lot about Jesus. It's, you know, good Bible study methods. I, I made that observation myself. And uh, so what I did is I, I, I read back through the whole book, and I wrote down everything that Peter said about Christ. Because Jesus was center to his life. And I was reminded, just from Peter, that Jesus is the Son of God. That he is the pre-existent, eternally existent Son of God. That he lived a perfectly sinless life. That when he was suffering, he didn't retaliate. Instead, he gave himself on behalf of our sins, all of our sins. His death was a substitute for me. And when he paid that price through his death, he redeemed me. He purchased me. God said that payment is adequate for your sin, Brian, and for the sins of all humanity for all time. 
But then he didn't stay in the grave. God accepted his sacrifice and raised him up and seated him at his right hand, proving that Jesus Christ is the conqueror. Because of that, I have an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away because I am regenerated. I've been born again. I was dead and separated from Christ. Now I'm alive because I'm in Christ. That's the gospel. And you need, you need to own that. You need to be ready to say the words of the gospel, present the truth of the gospel. And when somebody hears it, Tell them, now, believe. All that you have to do is say, God, I accept that truth. I believe. Be ready. Own the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, every Christian needs to know how to present it. Second, master your story. Most effective means that you have for um, penetrating the, this culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ is your story. Okay, particularly in a postmodern culture, people can't argue with your story. Okay, that's against the value system of our culture to argue against someone's story. You can just say, wait, once I was blind, now I see. And they have to, well, okay, I can't argue with that. It's your story because this culture values story. They value experience. And when you say, this is my experience, it's difficult for them to argue with you. So if you look at uh, Paul's work, Apostle Paul, he frequently used his story. Now, obviously, Paul, Paul knew lots of apologetics. He had lots of different arguments for the existence of God and the fact that Jesus was Messiah. Today, he probably would be a master of creation-evolution debate, and he, he probably would have all those things mastered. But most frequently, Paul used his story. And it was a very simple outline. He talked about who he was before Christ. A sinner. And he's very open and honest about his sin. And then he talks about his encounter with Christ, how he came to know Christ. And then he talks about his life after he came to know Jesus Christ. And every single one of us, we need to know the gospel in the context of our story. Because people really, it really does break down barriers when you can talk about your story. I would encourage you have a one minute version. Okay, in case somebody's not really patient, and they don't want to hear, but you've got a chance just this is who I was, this is how I met Christ, and this is how I've been changed. Have that down. Well, you just know the words of your story. Or have, have a longer version as well, you know, in case you're sitting with a friend and you guys got venties, right? And you've you got plenty of time to talk and to meander. All the ways that God has moved and changed in your life. Okay, know your story and how the gospel has transformed you. Third, uh, master your audience. And what I mean by that is with your particular uh, set of friends and family members and neighbors, there will be a set of questions that keep coming up, okay? Issues and concerns that keep coming up within your sphere of in, in, influence and understand what are those issues? You know, are, are my family members, are they always struggling with this issue of how could God be good and powerful and still let bad things happen in our family? Well, think through that and then point them back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the hope that we have, not in this life, but in eternity. Third exhortation from Peter is this. Respond with respect. Peter says, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and with reverence. With gentleness and with reverence. The word for gentleness can also be translated a humility or meekness. It doesn't mean that we doubt 
the truth of the message. It means that we're confident in the truth of the message so that we can be gentle and meek. We are speaking from a place of strength. And what will open doors to the gospel is when we are respectful to those even who disagree with us. When we're willing to sit and listen and let the other person take as long as they need to tell their story or to state their point of view. We show them gentleness and respect and barriers to the gospel come down. In other words, if you want to share the gospel with a person who's a Muslim, don't burn the Koran. Right? Don't burn the Koran. Hey, would you read my New Testament? It tells you about Jesus. He's God. All the while, he can smell the smoke of his Koran burning in your backyard. Or even figuratively, you have a complete disrespect for him and his culture and so forth. No. You show honor and you show respect. Why? Because that person is made in the image of God. And that man or that woman is not fundamentally an enemy. They're prisoner of war. Okay, we need to totally readjust our, 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 our perspective on people who don't know Jesus Christ. They're prisoners of war. They, they're victims of Satan's deceit. If you had a friend who was, who was sick, who was terminally ill, and who was living in pain, and you sat down to have a meal with that person and they were grumpy or angry, would you cut them a little bit of slack? Well, of course you would, because you understand they're sick. They're hurting. You know, people who don't know Jesus Christ, ultimately, whether they can acknowledge it consciously or not, their life is empty and they're sick and they're hurting and they're broken. I would expect them to react out of anger to us once in a while and not even know why. You know, we can take those flaming arrows and just say, let me set them aside. I probably know why you're angry. It requires a huge shift in our mentality. These people are not our enemies. They're prisoners of war. They're creatures made in the very image of God and they need God to be at the center of their lives for them to be whole. Third, respond with respect. Fourth, prove your hope with your life. Verse 16 says, keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Keep a good conscience. In the context of uh, 1 Peter, what that means is, is live like Jesus, right? Follow in the footsteps of Jesus. In the pattern that Jesus laid, when he was being reviled, he didn't revile in return. And when we are persecuted for the cause of Christ in this world, one of our immediate reactions is to withdraw from the world and put up this barrier and just hang out with our Christians and then throw verbal abuse back out at the world because they're hurting us. We're tempted to disengage and Peter's exhortation is, no, you are citizens of another kingdom, you're aliens and strangers here, but stay engaged in the world. Okay, live in the marketplace don't withdraw, but be different as you live there. Live like Jesus Christ. Live for justice and righteousness and compassion and holiness and absolute truth. And if you take abuse for it, don't withdraw. Okay, that is why the church is here. That is why God hasn't taken the church and rescued it and pulled it out of the world. So that we would be salt and light. 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, if the salt is unwilling to say, Jesus Christ is unique, he is the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by him, the salt loses its saltiness, Christ doesn't make an impact in the culture. And so Peter is saying, be different, be unique, but be engaged. This week, we are, we're focusing on missions. But I hope you, you know, you've been around here long enough to know that the missions isn't one of our programs. Missions isn't one of our ministries. Missions is the mission of the church, right? That's, that is why we exist as a church, to worship. We encourage one another. We're equipped. And then we go out into the world to be light in a very dark place, to be salt and light, to be Jesus Christ in flesh and blood so people can see us and be drawn to him. And we should expect that the world will persecute because we are making exclusive claims for Jesus Christ. But you know what? It's exactly what they need to hear. Do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, our our global impact team, our missions team, has put together some great opportunities for you to get a better sense, not just of uh, what's going on in Europe, but also what's happening here. And what's going to be happening here more and more and more. So I want to encourage you to take advantage of these. The first is uh, the Go Conference. That is specifically designed for students. But uh, adults, parents, if you have never been to Breakaway, man, you got to (laughs) go. You will be so encouraged and so motivated. Now, this one's happening at Central Baptist Church. So it won't be as big as what happens on campus at Reed. But, you know, at, at Reed, on campus, on a weekly basis, there are five to 6,000 students gathering to worship God and to hear the Word of God taught. Do you realize that is the largest single weekly gathering of college students to worship anywhere on the planet? Wow! That's amazing! And it's happening right here in our little community. It's amazing. God is moving. God is active. I remember when I was doing college ministry, and we had lots of students coming College ministries from around the country, they call and say, hey, how you doing it? What do you do? You know, what, what are the tricks? I said, well, here's the trick. Go back 40 years and get lots of people to walk around the campus and pray and pray and pray for the movement of God's spirit on the campus. And then when it happens, get a job at that place, right? Because then you'll be able to, to experience this movement of the spirit. I said, you know, we don't do things that are tricky. We teach the word of God and we teach students how to study the word of God and how to worship him. And then we challenge them to to be witnesses for Christ in the world. It's not complicated, but God's spirit is moving. So, you know, adults, if you have never gotten to experience uh, what happens at Breakaway, I'd encourage you to go. Uh, Even though it's designed for students, uh, when we started this thing, we invited um, mission reps from different agencies. So there'll be probably at least 40 different agencies that are represented there. So, uh, you know, if you're interested in missions happening anywhere in the world, you can get a sense of what's happening in the world through the body of Christ. If you go and walk around and, and talk to the missions reps and get literature and that kind of thing, even if you don't, you say, well, I'm going to stage life. I'm not going to be going. Well, you know what? Maybe you're wrong. <laughs> Maybe God's going to take you and send you out somewhere anyway. So go try, go check it out. Or maybe you'll just be a better informed prayer or sender. Okay, but go. And students, you got to go. Even if you don't think you're going to be a missionary, you want to be a teacher or an engineer or whatever, you still need to be a Christian that loves what God loves and God loves the world. Okay? 
So that's the first one. Second, the Europe breakfast. Thursday, 6.45 a.m. here at Anderson. Uh, several of our missionaries are going to be there. You're going to get a sense again of what's going on in terms of missions and worldview in Europe. The Europe dessert We'll have a few more of our missionaries who will be interviewed. Matt and Shannon Morton are going to interview them Friday, 7 p.m. Then the short-term lunch. If you would like to go on a trip, we have summer projects uh, for students. We have year-long trips. We have uh, week-long, two-week-long opportunities. There are things for adults and families, for anybody who would like to get some exposure, find out what we're doing. Uh, And then finally, I didn't put it up here, but at the bottom of your card, uh, it talks about um, perspectives on the world Christian movement. Uh, which I think, is it Envision? Is that the, we've got a, it's like a one night, one day overview of the whole course. Uh, basically, what is, what has God done in missions? What is God's heart for the world? I took the course when I was a student and it changed my whole perspective on the world. Hence the name, <laughs> Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. So uh, that's not just for students, that's for adults as well. Let me encourage you, take advantage of these opportunities our team has just set up some great opportunities for you to just get a, a sense of what does God love and what's he doing in the world, okay? Let me close this in prayer. Father, I, I do pray that you would you'd grow our confidence in Jesus Christ, in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is the, the one message. He is the one Savior who can give to every man and every woman and every child life and purpose, and meaning, and hope. I pray, Lord, that we would not be ashamed of that gospel, but that with all boldness we would proclaim it in our lifestyles and in our words. I pray, Father, for this church that you would increasingly make us effective for the gospel of Christ here in our community, on the campus, and throughout the world. It is in Christ's precious name, our Savior, that we pray. Amen.